If you have your Bibles, open it with me to Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. As I was reading articles uh, on Billy Graham passing away, I was interested in the final hours of his life, the final years of his life, and the final hours of his life, up to 99, and still had a clear mind uh, up to his passing. And there in North Carolina, Billy Graham, he tuned in to a local uh, pastor's sermons on the radio. So he developed a friendship with this local pastor. At his crusades, Billy Graham would oftentimes emphasize, for those who came to Christ, you need to be part of a local church. Well, Billy Graham practiced that, and, and he considered this uh, local pastor, a guy named Don Wilton, his pastor. So he would try to go to service when he could, but every week, Don Wilton would come over to Billy Graham's house. I thought that it was interesting. Don Wilton said, you know, here, am I just, I'm just this normal guy, just this normal pastor. And I'm going to visit and minister to arguably the most influential evangelist since the Apostle Paul. Um, And he said, what was so striking to me was that everything was backwards to Billy Graham. He made me feel like the most important person in the world. I thought, what a wonderful characteristic that floats from a heart of humility. He said that they talked about golf, they talked about baseball, they talked about politics, they talked about the American people whom he loved, and they talked about his wife, Ruth, who went home to be with the Lord, uh, I think around 07 to 010, or to, to 2010. He said, but most of all, they talked about Scripture. And they talked about the Bible, and they talked about heaven. Um, he said that uh, what... Billy Graham wanted preached at his funeral, which is going to be this Friday, was his life verse, his life theme. That was Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. So, in honor of this man of God, I thought that we would preach from this text this morning. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. And we read, May I never boast, and this is the Apostle Paul speaking, May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What a great passage. Let's read this again. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us divine insight, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures and open up our heart and let it take root in our heart and produce a harvest of righteousness and soul winning, and passion for the things that you are passionate about, souls in the body of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Interesting, isn't it? Of all of the things that this guy, Saul of Tarsus, who changed his name to Paul, could have boasted about, he said, there's only one thing that I boast in. It's the cross of Christ. He could have boasted... And many other things in this category over here of uh, what we call the doctrine of human achievement. Things that we do, things that we accomplish, things that we achieve. He said, there were many things in this category that I could have boasted about. I could have boasted that I was uh, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And our equivalent today, that would be like saying, I had a Harvard law degree. 
He could have said, I, bo- I could have boasted in the fact that I was a Pharisee in our context and understanding of Scripture and their confrontation with Jesus. We think they were a bunch of bozos and clowns, but they were very sharp guys. It would be the equivalent today of saying, I have a Harvard Law degree and I was a United States Senator. But his boasting could have continued. He said, I was the youngest of all of my contemporaries holding the highest of the offices amongst the Pharisees. It's like saying, I have a Harvard Law degree, United States Senator, youngest ever to be elected to this office. He could have boasted in all of these things. He could have boasted in his intellect. He could have boasted in the fact that he was not only a Hebrew, but he was a Roman citizen. He could have boasted in his family clout. He could have boasted in his intellect. He could have boasted that he was uh, multilingual. But he said, I don't boast in any of this stuff. In fact, he called it in another place of scripture, dung. In other words, manure. All of these things that the world looks to me and is in awe about or would tend to look to me and pat me on the back about, it's really manure after meeting Jesus. I don't boast in any of this stuff. I take no confidence in this. I have no peace in it. I find no security in it. Nothing within me stirs with a sense of pride because of anything in this category. It's all manure after meeting Jesus. And interesting, isn't it? The things that he could have boasted about in Jesus. He could have boasted that Jesus was virgin born. He could have boasted that Jesus was overflowing with miracles. From his first miracle of turning water into wine, he could have boasted in Jesus walking on water and and, and healing the blind and raising the dead and feeding the multitude. He could have boasted in the fact that Jesus, even today, according to atheists and philosophers today, concede that Jesus from Nazareth was the greatest teacher and philosopher in history. He could have boasted in Jesus' humanitarian passion for the lost and the hurting and the helpless and the hungry. But he didn't boast about any of those things in Jesus. He didn't boast about anything in this category pertaining to himself. And he didn't boast about all of these things about our Lord. He said, I have one boast, and it's the cross of Christ. An interesting thing to boast about, especially to Jesus, to to Paul's original audience. Because the Roman world looked at the cross of Christ and they thought, you know what, that's just pure weakness. Your Messiah was dragged away and crucified on one of our crosses. The Greeks who prided themselves in knowledge looked at the cross of Christ and they said, that's just pure foolishness. That makes no sense. But Paul said, I boast in the cross of Christ alone. And I'm not ashamed of the cross of Christ because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Now, we have a beautiful cross hanging on our wall behind us. I dare say that some of you have a beautiful cross hanging around your neck. I would dare say that you have crosses hanging on your walls at home. There are crosses on the top of uh, hospitals and schools and churches. But did you know that in this culture, in the original context, that cross would have sent the connotation and the emotion that our uh, hangman's noose would have today? 
It was an execution device. Can you imagine having a necklace with a gold hangman's noose from it, hanging from it? It would have the same connotation as our electric chair has today. Can you imagine decorating our churches with electric chairs? Or a gallow that beheaded people. Can you imagine putting on the top of our building a gallow? Or it would have the same connotation as a needle for a lethal injection. Even more so, because it wasn't designed to be a humanitarian, uh, quick and easy form of execution. It was designed to be a long, gruesome, public, humiliating, torturous design for execution. And Paul said, you know what? People look at me and think that in the natural realm, there's a whole lot that I could boast about. I don't brag about any of these things. And then even when I look at Christ, although there is certainly an infinite amount of things that I could boast about, I don't boast about that. There's one thing that I boast about, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. And let's look at why the Apostle Paul boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ. One, because it displays... The severity of our sin. Paul said, I boast in one thing, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ, because it displays the severity of our sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned. We've all sinned. How many of you guys think that you have not sinned? Raise your hand. How many of you think think you've sinned? Raise your hand. You know, in all of my years of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, I've only encountered two people who just didn't think they were sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But not only that, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin or the consequences of sin is death. And the Bible defines this death as first spiritual death. That's separation from God. You see, when we're finally born again, we're not just, we, it's not just that we were bad and we were made better. It's that we were dead And we were made alive. We were born again. We were given a new life. The wages of sin is death. And that death, first and foremost, is separation from God. When we are spiritually dead, that results then in an emotional death with an empty heart, a thirsty heart. Which is why, incidentally, so many people are in this category frantically climbing the doctrine of human achievement, trying to satiate their thirsty heart and find significance or find satisfaction or find refuge or find escape from the world. When we sin, we die. That's the consequence of sin. We die spiritually. We die emotionally. Eventually, we die physically. And then we die eternally. And that's a prolonged eternal death that's a state of consciousness that the Bible defines as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Apostle Paul said, I boast in the cross of Christ. And the first reason is because it displays the severity of our sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin has a penalty, and that penalty is death. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, and then eventually, eternally. All right. Well, God bless you guys. Thank you for being here this morning. No, I'm joking. Aren't you glad that's not where our gospel ends? It continues on. And some people think, you know, 
I just don't think. And there's your problem right there. Thinking instead of diving into Scripture. Or, well, I think. There's your problem right there. Conjuring up your own theology instead of surrendering to and submitting to Scripture. I think that a loving God wouldn't cause people to pay for their sins. I think that a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. He doesn't send them. He commands his angels to bind them hand and foot and cast them into the lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. Well, I think a loving God wouldn't do that. But what does Scripture say? What did Jesus teach? Well, I think that a good God, a compassionate God, a loving God doesn't have it in him to cause people to pay for their sins and cast them into outer darkness. But I would just turn the question around. If God is good, if God is holy, if God is just, how could he not bring people to account for their sin? How could he not? If God is anywhere remotely trustworthy, how could he not bring people to account for their sin? For example, imagine with me that somebody in your family member, maybe a young six-year-old in your family member, was kidnapped and horrifically abused physically, sexually, and then killed. And then the day of that court hearing uh, arrived, and they had the perpetrator, they, they had the, 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 the criminal, and all of the evidence was stacked against him so heavily that he couldn't deny it, and he confessed. And you're sitting there in that court, and you're waiting for the judge's verdict. Can you imagine if the judge said, okay, guys, now listen, listen closely. Come on. Who among us hasn't messed up a time or two? Seriously. I mean, shouldn't we turn the other cheek? Shouldn't we love? Shouldn't we give him a second chance? If you were in his place, wouldn't you want a second chance? I'm not going to execute the death penalty. I'm not going to sentence him to punishment. I'm going to set him free. Because that's probably what you would want if you're in his shoes. How many of you would feel like that was a good judge? How many would feel like that was a just judge? How many of you would feel like that was a trustworthy judge? How many of you would feel that that was a loving judge? There would be nothing loving about that, not to the victim, not to your family, not even to the person who committed the crime. If a judge is a good judge, if he's an honorable judge, if he's a trustworthy judge, then he's going to uphold the law. And in the same way, God is holy, therefore he established the law. The wages, the consequences of sin is death. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, and then eternally separated from him. And that's not because God lacks compassion, that's because God is compassionate. It's not because God lacks goodness, he is good. He is trustworthy. He's holy. And therefore he upholds the law. The wages of sin is death. The big sins and the small sins. Because compared to God's holiness, it's all the same sin. You're like, oh, hold on. I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never done any of the big sins. Have you not? In the book of James, we read that if you're in the lobby and you overlook somebody because of the way they're dressed, and you show somebody partiality because of the way they're dressed, you've committed the sin of partiality and favoritism. You broke one, what you thought was a small aspect of the law, and therefore are guilty of breaking the entire law. So you're not only a bigot, but you're a murderer, an adulterer, and an idolater. 
We've all sinned, and we're all in the same camp. We all come equally to the foot of cross, to, to the foot of the cross. I thought it was fitting that Billy Graham will be buried in a pine box, a plain pine box, made by murderers, ex-murderers on death row in a prison. And it speaks to the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is heralded to everyone, come one and come all, because we're all equal at the foot of the cross. All of our sins are equal at the foot of the cross. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are all equally forgiven and we are all equally made the very righteousness of God. Paul said, I boast in one thing, and that's the cross of Christ, because first of all, it displays the severity of sin. The wages of sin is death. But secondly, it displays the enormity of God's love for us. I boast in one thing, the cross of Christ, because it displays the severity of sin, but not only that, it displays the enormity of God's love. See, God is so just, He's so good, He's so holy, He's so trustworthy, He said the consequence for sin, all sin, any sin, is death. And I'm going to uphold that. But he's so loving, he's so humble, God is so gracious, God is so kind, he's so merciful. He said, the wages of sin is death, and I will uphold that. But I'm going to pay that price on your behalf. So the cross of Christ displays the severity of sin, but not only that, it displays the enormity of the love of God. Because God loves us so much, he chose to pay the price on our behalf with the life of his own son. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he didn't choose the easy way. I've often wondered why God chose to be born in the time frame, in the era, in the culture... That, that, that he chose. I've often chose why God chose the measure of execution upon himself that he chose for payment of the world. Now, one obviously is to fulfill prophecy and to fulfill scripture, but God set the entire thing in motion, and I've wondered why did God choose that manner of execution on our behalf? Why did he choose a manner of torture where the beard would be ripped out of his face, the flesh would be ripped off of his back with a cat of nine tails, where there would be torture and there would be ridicule and the spikes and the, and the rod pounding the spikes deeper, the, the crown of thorns deeper into his head and carrying that 150-pound beam up a hill and having the spikes driven through his hands and feet so that when he's hanging on the cross, he's suffocating and he pulls himself up to catch a breath and it sh- sh- sends excruciating pain through his veins and nerves and he drops again to breathe or to to, to alleviate the pain, and so he pulls himself up to take a breath, sending excruciating pain throughout his body. Why did he choose that means of execution? I believe because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and that form of execution was Father God's chastisement and punishment upon all sin. And he chose the most public, the most visible, the most torturous, the most excruciating pain possible, the most excruciating punishment possible. 
As we read in Isaiah chapter 53, the chastisement was upon him that brought us peace. And he did that for us. He did that because he loves us. There's a story about this girl, she just gets her driver's license, she's 16 years old, and she has her friends in the car, and they're drinking, and they're driving down a school zone, they're going 80, it's a 20, they look in the rearview mirror, there's flashing lights, the policeman pulls her over, he's really upset about how dangerous this was, how irresponsible this was, and he just starts writing her up all of these citations. Eventually, this young lady is standing before the court, she's standing before the judge, And the judge scolds the lady for her irresponsibility and how dangerous that was. And he begins issuing her citations and fines for her citations. And then he issues her her fines, and it's like the amount of $5,000. Her jaw drops because she doesn't have $50, much less $5,000. But then something very unique happens. The judge stands up. He takes off his black robe. He walks down in front of the bench. He pulls out his checkbook. And he writes out $5,000, he puts it on the bench. Because not only was that judge the girl's judge, that judge was also the girl's dad. And as a judge, he had a responsibility to uphold the law of the land, or he wouldn't be a good judge, a trustworthy judge, a reliable judge at all. But as her dad, he knew he was going to pay the price. And in the same way, even before the foundation of the world, God knew that he was on course with the cross. You see, God wasn't first creator and second redeemer by plan B default. He didn't create Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve fell, and he's like, you know what? I got a second plan. I'm going to go to the cross. No, redemption wasn't plan B. Redemption was always plan A. Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Even before he created the cosmos, God was redeemer. He wasn't first creator and then by default, Redeemer, God has always been Redeemer, and creation was the context for Him to display His love for us. The cross of Christ was Paul's boast because it displays the severity of sin, but secondly, because it displays the enormity of God's love. God said, I will uphold the law, the wages of sin is death, but I'm going to pay that with the price of my own son. That's how much I love you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then the second part of that verse is the third reason that the apostle Paul had one singular boast, and that was the cross of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The cross displays the exclusivity of salvation. The exclusivity of salvation. In other words, salvation isn't a broad path, it's a narrow path. Salvation is not like this one mountain with many trails, and then there's this, there's this divine guru at the top of the mountain, and it doesn't matter which path you took. Maybe you took the, plat- the path of Islam. Maybe you took the path of Hinduism. Maybe you took the path of being a philanthropist. Maybe you took the path of religious works in Catholicism. And it doesn't really matter what path you take, just as long as you do your best, then we'll all get to the top of the mountain together, and that divine guru will say, come on in, guys. No, the Bible says in John 3.16 that whosoever believes in Christ will have everlasting life. 
Salvation is not a broad path. It's a narrow path. It's exclusive. And in other places in Scripture, Paul said that if there was salvation in any other way than faith in Christ, Jesus died for nothing. It's an exclusive path. Through faith in Christ and Christ alone, and at that moment, the human soul is reborn, born again into new and eternal life. And the fourth reason I believe that Paul boasted in the cross of Christ alone is the sufficiency of Christ's work. For our salvation, for our sanctification, for our glorification, the sufficiency of Christ's work. When Jesus was on the cross, he made seven statements. And they all speak to the sufficiency of his work for us on the cross. The first statement in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How many of you guys have a leaf in your dining room table? Or when you were kids, remember a leaf in your dining room table? You have company coming over to the house, and so, you know, people get on each side of the table, and they open it up, they make the table bigger, they put the leaf in. So it went from a table that could fit about four people to a table that might be able to fit about eight or maybe even ten people. Well, the church, the body of Christ, needs to extend the leaf of our table. We need to extend our dining room table to invite anyone and everyone to the banqueting table to feast on the forgiveness that's made possible through Jesus Christ. Because as I said earlier, we all come equal sinners. We all come equal sinners. And through faith in Christ's work on the cross alone, we are all made equally the very righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. The second statement that Jesus made on the cross. He looked at the thief next to him in Luke 23, 43. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to forgive all of our sins. But not only that, Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to give us a ticket to heaven. It's not that we're on standby. How many of you guys have gone to the airport and flown standby? You're pacing back and forth. Even if you've never flown standby, you can point somebody out who is flying standby because they're the ones who look nervous. They're the ones who keep going back to the ticket box and talking to the person. The guys who have their ticket, they're crashed, they're relaxed, they're trying to get some sleep. Faith in Jesus Christ isn't standby, hoping that we get on the flight to heaven. It's a ticket that's irrevocable, that can't be taken back. As we read in Ephesians 1.13, Upon hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. You have a guaranteed ticket to heaven, because the moment you're born again, Jesus comes into your heart. And unlike what the Jehovah's Witness and other doctrines teach, other theologies teach, once you die here, you don't enter into some sort of soul sleep. Scripture doesn't teach that. Lights out here, lights on in heaven. No jet lag, no time delay. The moment you die, the moment your spirit departs your body, you are immediately face-to-face with Christ. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said, today you will be with me in paradise. And the apostle Paul said, to be absent from the body? Oh, to be present with the Lord. 
they told Paul, Paul, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're going to kill you. And he said, would you please? For to me, to live is Christ, but to die, to die is gain. I know for your sake, I'll go on living in the body, but oh, for me, it's better to be home with the Lord, to be present with the body, to be separate with the Lord, to be absent from the body. Oh, that's to be face to face with Jesus Christ. And that is far better. I've been beside many people who've taken their last breaths or shortly after they've taken their last breaths and you just look at that loved one and you know, you know what? I honor this body because the person I loved wore it, but this is so not them. This is like an old pair of shoes they used to wear around. They are home. It's evident that this is no longer them. The essence of them, the life, immediately departs at the time of death and is in one of two places. And because the Apostle Paul got a glimpse of heaven when he was caught up into the third heaven... To stay humble about it, he referred to himself in the third person when he talked about it. But he got a glimpse of the third heaven, and because of that, he always had this longing for home, this longing for heaven. The cross of Christ is sufficient for our forgiveness. The cross of Christ is sufficient for our ticket to heaven when we place our faith in Christ and Christ alone. Thirdly, Jesus said, woman, behold your son, as he looked at Mary and pointed, nodded to John. And as he's dying on the cross, he looks at John. Behold your mother. I think this is so beautiful as Jesus is in the midst of this torment, this excruciating suffering, this excruciating pain. As everybody's mocking him and ridiculing him, he's looking out for his mom and John. And what's he doing? He's creating family. When Jesus died on the cross, he created a spiritual family called the church. This was his heart cry before he died. Father, that they may be one as you are in me and I am in you and we're one. May they be one. This was his passion. This was his plea that they may be one as he created this spiritual family. Interestingly, they didn't bash Jesus' feet so that he couldn't push himself up any longer or his legs. They went to the thieves on each side. They bashed their legs. They couldn't push themselves up. They died more quickly because the Jews didn't want a dead body on the cross. On the Sabbath, they came to Jesus to bash his legs. They didn't to fulfill scripture. Not one of my bones will be broken. He had already given up the spirit. To make sure he was dead, they stabbed him in the side with a spear. Blood and water flows. Anatomically, it's a condition of when your heart ruptured. Jesus almost didn't make it to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, My heart is sorrowful even unto the point of death. How many, how many of you guys have ever said a lie? Raise your hand. I have too. How many of you have ever felt bad about the lie that you've said? Me too. How many of you have ever sinned bigger than a lie and felt bad about it? Can you imagine all the sins from little white lies to your biggest sins ever committed in the entirety of your life. Can you imagine feeling all of that? The weight of that guilt in one moment? Can you imagine how all of that would bear upon your heart in one moment? Jesus felt all of your sins that you ever committed in one moment, but not only that, he felt all of the sins of the world since the, every person who's ever lived since the beginning of the world to the end of days. The weight of their sins at one moment. As he knew he was walking into that. That's why he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, my heart is sorrowful, even to the point of death. Can I drink this cup? He's not talking about the physical pain. This is the guy who went 33 years without sinning once in deed or thought or motive. 
He went 40 days without eating. He knows how to deny the flesh. He's not afraid of pain. It's the thought of bearing the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulder and becoming sin for us so that in that state, Father God would chastise sin on our behalf. And that weighed so heavily upon him that our Lord and Savior died of a ruptured heart and blood and water flowed. But metaphorically, the blood is a picture of the blood of Jesus that forgives our sin and the water a picture of the Holy Spirit that gives birth to the church. Jesus died to create the church. And he didn't die to create the church, as I said earlier, so that we approach it like a swimming pool on a cold spring day, but like a cannonball on a midsummer day. We are to dive in, both feet. We are to dive in for the work of the ministry, for the glory of Christ. We were doing some work around the church, and somebody said something, and I almost grabbed them by the collar and shook them. And they said, oh, it doesn't have to be perfect. This is only for the church. Meaning, I guess if it were for the business or if it were for politics or if it were for entertainment, then it would have to be on the top shelf. But if it's for the church, oh gosh, on a, if we have a capacity on a scale of 1 to 100, the church is only worth 25%. Oh, It's the body of Christ. It's the church. King David said, I'd rather be an usher in the house of a God, in the house of God, than a king. And as we approach church, as we approach ministry, as we approach encouraging one another, let's give our Lord and Savior all of our heart. Not only our approach to church, but our approach to anything that we do. Vocationally, and that's a testimony to the world. All the relationships that we enter, let's approach it 100%. The scriptures say in Colossians, do all things with all your heart, as unto the Lord, and not unto men. What is your approach? Well, tonight at our Vision Banquet, we're going to talk about how you can jump in with both feet. It's going to be a time of celebration, but it's going to be a time of, of inspiration as we talk about where God is taking us. God is so faithful. He is so, he's been so extravagant with us. And so we're going to talk about how we can be part of the body of Christ, the church. And the fifth thing, or the fourth thing that Jesus said from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was filled with our sin. He carried the weight of our sin and was separated from the Father to take the punishment of Father God. He was separated so we could be reconciled. He died so we could live. The fifth statement Jesus made was, I thirst. Display the physical pain that the living water, the living water thirsts. The physical pain that Jesus willingly endured on our behalf. The sixth statement Jesus made, it is finished. In John 19.30, and this might be, (laughs) I might say this every week, but this might be one of my favorite statements in all of scripture. It is finished. In the Greek, that word is tetestela. It's an accounting term. If you went into the market and you bought meat, they would give you the meat and you would give them the money and they would give you a receipt and they would stamp on the receipt, it's, it's finished, it's accomplished, price paid in full. There have been gels that have been excavated and they've seen carved on the side of the wall, somebody committed a crime, perhaps they had to serve three years, they counted down the years, on the last day they carved on the side, I 
paid my price. And then when they were released, they were given release papers, uh, 33 years, and then they stamped across it, take test the law, paid in full. And we oftentimes hear that statement, it is finished, and just think that, okay, end of the story, right? A dramatic ending to the story. Jesus cried out very dramatically, it's finished. It's so much more than that. He cried out an accomplishment. Tete Salah, it's accomplished. Price paid in full for your sins. And the seventh statement that Jesus made was, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And this shows us how to walk through setbacks, how to walk through disappointments, how to walk through discouragements. And when we trust in Christ's work for us on the cross and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, God takes those setbacks, those disappointments, those painful seasons, and he translates them into our greatest testimonies for his glory and the hope of the world and pure delight for our soul. Whether it's uh, Joseph who was betrayed and forgotten and went through 13 years of suffering, who was able to look at his perpetrators and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God takes all of our pain, setback, disappointments, failures, heartaches, wounds, and he translates them into our greatest blessings if we just live a life of surrender to him and we live a life of trust and his work for us on the cross and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that makes all things new. I believe that Paul had one boast, and it was the cross of Christ, because it so vividly displays the severity of sin. It so vividly displays the enormity of God's love for us. It so vividly displays the exclusivity of the plan of salvation. There is one way, and it's a narrow path, and it's faith in Christ, in Christ alone, or Christ died for nothing. And it so vividly displays the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross for our salvation, for our sanctification, our progress in sanctification, for every need that we may ever have. And now, as you leave here, there's going to be such a temptation because we continue to live in these earth suits called bodies for a little while longer. And there's going to be such a temptation to go out and try to find something in this category of the doctrine of human achievement and accomplishment to anchor your confidence to. Well, I'm, you know, I kind of, I'm kind of a cool person. I, I'm a smart person. I'm a pretty person. I'm, I'm an accomplished person, I'm a compassionate person, I'm a loving person, I'm a basically good person, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an academic person. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on of things that we tend to place our confidence in. And Paul says, all of this is manure, it's dung, it's worthless, once you get a glimpse of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he's accomplished for you on the cross. And then you have one boast, and that's the cross of Christ. We tend to think that our credentials to worship, our credentials to share our faith with others, our credential to work in the ministry rests in this column. And I think that this is why we oftentimes have a passive approach to Christ, evangelism, and the work of Christ. Because we think that our credentials for ministry are in this column, the doctrine of human achievement. 
And so we serve half-heartedly, passively, maybe with our hands in the pocket, not too engaged. Because that's what ultimately this will do for you. But we have one credential, all of us only have one credential, and it's what Christ has done for us on the cross. And He's made us new, we're born again, He's filled us with His Spirit, and He's made us the very righteousness of God. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is the sinful woman. We don't know what her sins were. Probably she was a prostitute. And she placed her faith in Christ. He transformed her life. And she, she's washing in a public setting. She's washing his feet with her tears. Isn't that beautiful? She's washing his feet with her tears. I mean, they're dining at a table, and they didn't have tables like we're going to dine in tonight, you know, that are upright and with chairs that you sit on underneath. The tables are close to the ground, and they have pillows, and they all recline on their side, probably their left side, and they're reclining, and their feet are up there near the table, and, and everybody's around the table like this. Jesus is reclined at the table, and she walks up. She would have to be on her hands and knees. This is so humble. She walks up in an environment that she's not even invited, and she's sobbing, and she's Washing his feet with her tears. This is so humble. This is so grateful. And the whole time she's kissing his feet. And she doesn't have a rag, so she's drying his feet with her hair. How intimate is that? How passionate is that? She had one credential in her life. She had one boast, one confidence. And it's what Christ would do for her on the cross. Everybody else at the table was in this category, and they achieved, they, did, they had moral deeds, they had moral certificates, they had moral uh, Boy Scout patches, and that was their boast. And they got a lot of pats on the back from people, and they thought they were worthy, they were qualified to be God's hands and feet because of what they've achieved here. <laughs> And they're thinking, if Jesus were really something, he would know what kind of woman this was, and he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, says, I've got a question for you. Say, somebody's owed a lot of money. Say, a million dollars. Somebody else has owed not so much money, a couple thousand dollars. Both of them are forgiven their debts. Who's more grateful? And the guys over here in this column said, well, I guess the person who had the greater debt forgiven would be more grateful. He said, exactly. You don't think you've sinned much? And you're not very grateful to me, are you? But look at the grace that she's received. Look at the forgiveness that she's received. And look at the gratitude that's pouring out of her heart. Whoever is forgiven little loves little. Whoever's forgiven much loves much. She's been forgiven so much. Look at how much she loves me. The only thing... The only thing that matters in the kingdom of God, the only thing that qualifies us to be Christ's hands and feet is not in this category. It's not what we achieve. It's in this category. It's in what we receive by way of forgiveness, mercy, and grace made possible through the cross of Christ. And as a result, what we return by way of pure gratitude and worship. Would you stand with me, please? There's going to be a temptation for all of us to leave and still place confidence in the flesh. Our flesh dies hard. But let's make one thing our boast, the cross of Christ. He loves us so much, 
He paid for our sin to make us the very righteousness of God. And let's respond with worship. Let's respond with gratitude. So with your heads bowed, I wonder how many of you would say, yeah, you know what? I think I've been living in the achievement category, thinking I need to do things to, 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 to be qualified for God. And I need to do things to be qualified for ministry. And I need to do things to be qualified to worship with an abandoned heart. If that's you, raise your hand. I would just like to pray for you. Yeah, me too, me too. All right, Father, you saw those hands, and we just pray in Jesus' name that you would continue to open up the eyes of our heart through the Holy Spirit, and let us see how much you've done for us. Let us see the accomplishment of the cross of Jesus Christ, so that everything else in this world pales in comparison. What other people say about us, good or bad, what other people have done to us, good or bad, the accomplishments, our actions, good or bad, may everything pale in comparison compared to the one thing that should be our confidence, our boast, the cross of Christ. And let us respond with worship. Let us respond with loving you in return. Let us respond with telling everyone everywhere about the cross of Christ. As Saul of Tarsus was riding high on his high horse on the road to Damascus. Full of pride in the doctrine of human achievement. And as he finally saw you and was knocked off his high horse and was blinded to this world and crucified to this world. As he got a glimpse of the cross of Christ, Lord. And made that alone his confidence, that alone his boast, that alone his passion. That alone his credential. May that alone be our boast. May that alone be our confidence. May that alone be our credential to worship you and to live for you and to reach out to a lost and dying world for you. With your heads bowed, if perhaps you think that you're going to go to heaven because of something you've done on the doctrine of human achievement, You will take your last breath here on this earth and wake up in a miserable eternity and you cannot alter your condition. Repent of the doctrine of human achievement today and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. In the recesses of your heart, call out, Oh Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and thank you for paying for my sin on the cross. Come into my life through your Holy Spirit and make me new and begin leading my life. I trust in the work of the cross alone for my salvation. And let that be my singular boast. And if you've been a believer a while, just pray, oh God, make the cross my singular boast. Make the cross my singular source of confidence. Make the cross my singular source of self-esteem. Make the cross my singular credential to worship you and to reach out to a lost and dying world on your behalf. And let's just respond to the cross with worship.